Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through his word. Be blessed. Blessings today in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, in the name of Jesus, the Christ. We are back with you today, and we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Again with me, I have Alan. He was with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. What a beautiful chapter about things sacrificed to idols. And it's a beautiful chapter in the sense that we're motivated by the love of God, not by our knowledge. Our knowledge will make us arrogant. But if our knowledge is based and motivated by God's love that's inside of us, we think about what is the right thing to do to glorify God and to edify the body of the Messiah. Hopefully you listened to that chapter. And now we're going to come into chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. And in this chapter, it's about ministry. It's about how we approach ministry and what was important to Shaul. Shaul was his Hebrew name. But the Apostle Paul, as we know him later on in the book of Acts and around the world, what was important to him in ministry and how he was under compulsion in what he was doing. He wasn't doing it for money. It was not a volunteer basis in which he was ministering to the gospel. In this chapter, he's going to say, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And I encourage those that feel a call to ministry, and what I mean by that is going and giving every ounce of your effort, your life, your time, your focal point to bringing the gospel to the world. If you're going that direction, you need to read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and you also need to read all of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians that we're going to be studying later. In this 2 Corinthians letter, Paul is having to defend his integrity, his life, his ministry, his apostleship. It has come under attack. And some people have this vision that when you answer the call of God, like Isaiah did in the sixth chapter, that it's going to be a beautiful road and a nice life that you're going to live. But there are heartaches going down that road. There are obstacles that you're going to have to go through. In Jeremiah's case, he's going to find himself in a hole in the ground. And for 40 years, Jeremiah preached and people did not agree with him. They did not say, amen, we agree with you. But they fought against him, even his own home village. His father and his brothers plotted to take his life. Sometimes it's a lonely road. Sometimes it's a difficult road. Sometimes you're under attack from the outside and from the inside. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul's going to say, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And so this is something that I really want us to go through this chapter and feel the heart of Paul. He really gave everything, and he knew that's what he had to do. But, you know, even in this chapter, you're going to see that he's looking for his eternal reward. Um, And he knows that, you know, eternity and what he's going to gain um, is much better than anything that anybody can give him in this life or any reward that he can even see in this life through his ministry. He's looking for that eternal reward and, and winning the race and running the race and finishing and hearing, you know, the Father say, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. So, 
Amen. And he's going to say that in his last last letter that he writes, Second Timothy. He's right before his death. He wants to understand, well done, thy good and faithful servant. I would encourage everybody to read through Acts chapter 9, which is Paul's conversion. His name was Saul in Hebrew, Shaul. And on that road to Damascus, as he's going with a letter, in order to arrest believers in Yeshua, take them back to Jerusalem, put them into jail, and they would have to stand trial for their faith in Yeshua. On the road to Damascus, a light comes from heaven, and Jesus speaks to him, Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? And on that road was a conversion experience that the one that was persecuting the followers of Yeshua, Jesus, is now proclaiming the faith. And you read about how he went blind, how he received his sight, how he began to reason in the synagogues. And from the very beginning, he was in tune with the call of God upon his life because God called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles and to the sons of Israel and to minister the gospel and to God's going to show him how much he would suffer for his namesake. Think about that. The suffering that Paul would have to go through was at the forefront. He understood it at the beginning of his calling. God spoke to him how much he would have to suffer for the sake of Christ. And so he knew that from the beginning, and you see this suffering theology, or let me say it in this way, this suffering teaching all through Paul's writings. It is not about health, wealth, and prosperity and gaining more of the temporal things of this world. It's all about being abused, being beaten up, going through persecution, but keeping your eyes on the prize. And that's what Paul did for 25 to 30 years. So let's read chapter 9, and let's go through it verse by verse, and you can follow along with us. Verses 1 and 2. He asked the question, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Some people say, well, when did he see the Lord? On the road to Damascus, the voice coming out of the light said, Why are you persecuting me? And he says, Who are you? And he identifies himself as Jesus. He had this experience with the light and Jesus that was coming. Maybe that's the voice of Jesus that was coming out of the light. Maybe that's what he's referring to. Or maybe he had been a witness of Jesus during his ministry. We do not know. But I personally think he's talking about that road to Damascus. He says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Question mark. He's answering the question even though he's stating a question. Verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle. You're going to see that in his second letter. Some are questioning his apostleship. At least I am to you. Who is he speaking to? To the believers at Corinth. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. What Paul is saying, that being an apostle is laying the foundation where there is no foundation. That's going to come about in in Romans chapter 15. And when he looks at the city of Corinth, who laid the foundation? Paul laid the foundation. Paul came there determined to preach only Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
people got saved. He spent a year and a half there discipling them, building them up in the faith. So he's looking back to the Corinthian believers and saying that you are the seal of my apostleship. And that's very important. When you look at what defines our ministry or what gives us a title, it's not some board or organization or some church saying, you're a pastor, you're an evangelist, you're an apostle, you're a prophet, you're a teacher. Some people receive that title, but they cannot teach the Word of God. Some people have the title of a pastor, but they don't know how to shepherd a congregation. If I listen to television and Christian ministry, it seems like every other person is an apostle, or they define themselves in a, as an apostle. But what defines a person as an apostle is their ministry. And this is what Paul is saying, that you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. When I understand who I am, I don't have to wait for someone else to say that I'm an apostle. I don't even have to get into that debate. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You are the evidence that God used me to come there to plant the foundation, to bring the gospel, and to bring up a community of faith in the city of Corinth. Now look at the determination, because anybody can say whatever they want about me, but when you see the fruit of that ministry, that defines who you are. Anybody can call themselves a prophet, but how do we know who a prophet is? By what they prophesy and what they prophesy comes true. Then that is the evidence that they're a prophet, not because someone came and said, oh, Alan, you're a prophet. You're going to be prophet Alan. Anybody can say that, but start prophesying, and we will tell whether you're a prophet. You say you're an apostle. Why are you in America? In the city of Birmingham, there's 2,000 churches. How can you be an apostle in Birmingham? An apostle, apostolic ministry, is laying the foundation where there is no foundation. You want to be an apostle? Let's go to North India. There's a whole region that's never heard the gospel. So go, lay the foundation, sacrifice, take yourself, your family, go there, live there. Don't come one week, one time a year. Go there, live there, lay down your life for the gospel there. That will define you as an apostle. If you're an evangelist, the fruit of evangelism, you will see the fruit of it. Nobody can give you that title. It will come forth from your ministry. Hopefully that makes sense. This is what Paul is saying. You are the seal of my apostleship. Someone can question it. Someone can say you're not an apostle. But you, Corinthians, you are the evidence that God used me as an apostle in the city of Corinth. Amen? Amen. So let's continue. Let's read verses 3 through 7, if you don't mind reading, Alan. Yes, sir. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Listen to these words that Alan was reading. He is giving up so much rights in order to preach the gospel to the Corinthians. Right now, we believe he's at Ephesus, but he's writing back to the Corinthians. 
when you look at this, he has a right to have a wife and a family. Like many others that are ministering the gospel, he has a right to receive offerings from people that he's ministering to. But most of Paul's life in his ministry, 25 to 30 years, he worked with his own hands. He was a tent maker and he provided for himself and gave him the ability to continue to travel to preach the gospel. There were times that people sent offerings and we're going to read about that in Philippians at the end of this. But we want to see that he is willing to give up rights that he doesn't have to give up, but there is a compulsion in him that his life is about preaching the gospel and he's willing to give up his rights in order to preach the gospel. Maybe there were those that were saying he's only doing this for money. Maybe there were accusations that uh, he's trying to build a name for himself. All kinds of things come as you're uh, laying the foundation of the gospel in a city, in a region. However, every accusation that came against him, he did not take the rights that he naturally could take. He gave them up in order that not anyone could bring a charge against the gospel. And when you think about that, coming from a place like America, everything in America is about my rights. I have a right to do this. Don't take away my rights. I have a right to bear arms. I have a right to free speech. You will not mess with my rights. Let me say that in a different way. You will not take away my rights. I will defend my rights as an American citizen. That was not the approach of Paul when he was ministering. I have a right to have a wife. I have a right to be supported for what I do. I have a right for many things that I am giving up. What is the focus of my life? It is to preach the gospel. You're going to see this come through as we go through this chapter. Now let's look at verses 8 through 14. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritually things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of the Messiah, the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Alan, can you comment on this and I'll comment after you. Hopefully this is very clear to everyone that is listening. Paul saying this, and I was going to ask you, Scott, you know, if we look back at 1 Corinthians 8, you know, where he's talking about the, you know, building up your brother in love and, and not eating, you know, we, he knows he can eat the food from an idol because an idol's not real, but he chooses 
not to for the sake of his brother. And I think it, it kind of ties in, you know, with the flow of thought where he goes a little bit more into detail with this. And he says, all of these things are okay for me to have, you know, have a wife, um, you know, to, to get an offering from you. You know, he's sowing spiritual things, which are eternal, right? So are material things not a good, you know, not payment, but aren't they something he could get back from them because he's given them, you know, shown them Yeshua, Jesus Christ, and explained this and built this foundation. But he's saying, no, I'm not going to even take those things from you. I'm going to continue to make tents because I want to build you up. And he's doing this through his his compulsion, like he said, we'll see later on. But it's really his love for the people. And he's really saying, I love you that much that I'm going to give up all of my rights for the gospel and for your sake. And even though these things are okay for me, I'm going to show you that this is how much I care about you because this is, you know, this is the best thing. Not that if he would have taken that, it would have been wrong, but he's, he loves them that much and he's compelled that much to say, I'm going to give it up. And all of these things are within his right to take. But he says, no, I'm going to deny it to show you I love you that much. Yes, and I think you hit it directly on point of his mindset coming out of chapter 8. He teaches that principle. In chapter 9, he's going to show he's living that principle. Mm -hmm. Now, there were divisions within the Corinthian church going all the way back to chapter 1. And some say, I'm of Apollos. Some say I'm, I'm of Paul, some say that I'm of Cephas, and some say I'm of Christ. And that was a special elite group, we believe. So you had all these divisions. Within the church, there could have been some that were attacking him and saying and questioning his motivation. He's doing this for money. Look at Paul. He's doing this to take advantage of you. Probably in that context... If you look at the weaker brother in chapter 8, we're dealing with believers here, and he has a right to take a financial gift because he has sowed spiritually within their lives. And look at verse 9. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. When you look at that, that's a principle that God is giving through the law that you would not do this to an animal, but it's a principle that God is bringing to the nation of Israel. If he's working for you, he should be allowed to eat. That's a principle that you see all the way through the Bible. But because there is an attack that's coming against Paul, and you're going to see it in his second letter, he's saying, okay, I'm willing to do all this work to spend a year and a half here laying the gospel. Now I'm in Ephesus. He's going to be in Ephesus for two years, three months. He's going to be there. He's saying, I'm not demanding anything from you. You don't have to give anything to me. I am willing to do this for free, not asking anything from you, because I do not want it to be a cause of hindrance to the gospel. Let's look at verse 12 again. If others share the right over you, if others share the right over you, do we not more? What does that mean? We planted the church. Wouldn't we even have more rights to share? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And that needs to be understood by anyone that feels like God's called you into ministry. It's not about money. It's not about your rights. It's not about building a retirement fund in the future. It's not about you making 
on the same level as someone else that is making, that's doing, uh, maybe you're working more than other people work, but you're getting paid less. Don't worry about it. God is your provider. God has called you. God will take care of you. And sometimes you have to give up your rights in order to not cause a hindrance to the gospel. And I want to say this. I, I know personally so many people that don't want to have anything to do with the gospel because when they see a minister of the gospel here in America in Western culture, everything that's coming out of their mouth is about money. That was not Paul. That was not Yeshua. That was not Jesus. That was not his emphasis. It was all about the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will add all these other things unto you. What is he talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? He's talking about food, clothing, shelter. God knows how to take care of our needs. And as we move forward preaching the gospel, it's a simple faith and trust that God is going to take care of us, even if it's not coming through people that we're ministering to. So if we're ministering somewhere and they have a complex about ministers having too much money and they pay them as little as possible, or we're not going to pay them anything at all, you have to check your heart. Who called me? Why am I doing this? And what is the focus of my life? And Paul's going to come here shortly and say, Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Let's continue. Let's read verses 15 through 18. Alan, if you could read these verses. Let's read 15 through 23. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Let's stop there in verse 18. Because I don't want to lose the significance of how powerful this is. He had the goal that he would offer the gospel without charge. Look at that in verse 18. So it would not be a focus upon money. So why do we have so many shows that represent the gospel that it's all about money? Every aspect of it is about money. It's just the opposite of what Paul is saying. Verse 18 again. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. When you go back to verses 15, 16, and 17, he is under compulsion. He's not doing this on a volunteer basis. It's compulsion. This is a calling. This is a passion in his life. The man that was killing believers, Stephen, the first believer in Yeshua among the Jewish people, when they took his robe, they laid it at the feet of Saul, of Paul. He was killing believers. He was going after them. He was coming against families, locking up men and women, putting them in prison, destroying homes. He had a passion to do this, thought he was doing the right thing. But after his conversion, that same passion to destroy the body of the Messiah 
is now to lay down his life for the body of the Messiah. And so he's under compulsion. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Recently, I heard a story, and it's a true story because I know the individuals. But a young man just walked away from his position in youth ministry to take a job in a different field. Now, I don't know all of the circumstances, but I do know this. When you begin ministry and putting yourself into the hands of God and saying, God, my life is to preach the gospel, to reach the unsaved, to disciple the believers, to build them up, you cannot just walk away and take another job because it pays more money. That's not a person that's called of God. That's a person that's going into a profession that's doing it voluntarily. I'll see if I like it, if I don't like it. If I get a reward, I get a reward. But if I don't, I'm going to go on to a different type of business. And we need people that have that mindset out of the pulpits, out of the shepherding, out of the pastoring, out of the youth ministry. And we need to have them with a compulsion. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Where else am I going to go? What is the alternative to what I am doing? I would like for everyone to read John chapter 6 this week. When Jesus is telling them, unless you drink of my blood and eat of my flesh, you cannot be my disciples. It says in John chapter 6 that many of his disciples withdrew and they did not follow him anymore. They could not digest what he was saying. Jesus turns to his 12. Of the 12, only 11 are true believers. And he says to them, now what about you? And Peter says, we have nowhere else to go. Where are we going to go? We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are, you are the individual. You are the one. You're the one, the promised one that would be sent to us, to Israel, to the Jewish people. And we don't have anywhere else to go. That was Peter in his life that God had called to be an apostle. And what he is saying, he's not saying that I understand what you mean by this teaching. Because a lot of what Jesus taught, they did not understand until after his death and after his resurrection. They didn't understand that he's not talking about the flesh. Literally, he's talking about spirit there. When you look at that, he says, we have nowhere else to go. We don't understand but I have nowhere else to go. And in ministry, this is very similar to what Paul is saying. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I don't have a plan B. I don't have an alternative plan. I don't have a secondary degree that I can fall back on. It's woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And I want that to be ingrained into the hearts of everyone that is listening. If God has called you, there's not a plan B. There is not an alternative route that you can go in profession. Woe to you if you do not preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was Paul's understanding as he preached to the Corinthian church. Let's read verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law. Let me stop for a second. For anybody that 
wants to tell you that now that you're a believer in Jesus, that you're still under the law. Look at what Paul is saying. He ministered to people under the law, as under the law, but understood not being myself under the law. As a believer, I'm not under the law. The law is fulfilled through the Messiah. I follow him. But look, so that I might win those who are under the law. So he would place himself under the law in order to minister to the Jewish people so there would not be a hindrance to the gospel. Verse 21, to those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He is under a law of Christ. What is that? The law of the Messiah is a life in the spirit that is within him. But when he would go and minister to people without the law, he's not going to step aside like Peter going to Cornelius' house and saying, I cannot come into your house. I cannot fellowship with you because you're not under the law. No, he's going to go and minister to people without the law and consider himself as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of the Messiah. There is a law in his life, and it's the law of the Messiah, a circumcised heart, a life in the Spirit, so that I might win those who are without the law. So in both cases, to Jews, to Gentiles, whatever their background, he adjusts to their background in order to bring the gospel to them. He is not compromising the gospel at all, but he is coming to those that have the law to place himself under the law, to minister the gospel to them, even though he understands he's not under the law. He's coming to those that do not have a law, and sometimes he's going to have to eat things that he's never eaten before, do things that he's never done before, go into a home that he would never have done before his conversion to the Messiah, and live a life as without the law, even though he has the law of the Messiah within him so that he can reach them. It's not a difficult concept to understand. Verse 22, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Not in any way is he talking about compromise of character, compromise of the gospel, but he's compromise of what contextually? His rights. Giving up his rights. I'm not under the law, but I'm willing to abide by all of these things in order that I may bring the gospel to them. I go to someone that's not under the law, I'll go and sit down and eat with them, and I will be as not under the law, even though I have the law of the Messiah, so that I can bring the gospel to them. I give up my rights. I'm willing to be weak to the weak and to become all things to all men so that I can save some, so I can bring the gospel and they can be changed by the power of God. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. If you're a minister of the gospel, think of this statement, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Not for your retirement fund, not for your name, not for status, not for a title. You do it for the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Hopefully this is ministering to you. Alan, if you could read the last four verses, chapter, verses 24 through 27. 
Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Amen. Really, the whole understanding of this and is in verse 24. Run in such a way that you may win. Be so determined, have such a passion, let there be such a compulsion within you. You're not going to settle for losing. I'm running in a way to win. And it's not winning in the eyes of men, but it's winning in a way that you will hear one day, well done, thy good and faithful servant. If you will look at the second letter of Paul at the end of his life, you look at that letter and you see at the end of his life, most people had deserted him. Where were the thousands that he brought to faith? Where were they? It was a time of persecution under Nero. Even Demas that had traveled with him for years, he says about Demas, Demas, he says he loved this world more. He's gone back to Thessalonica. You look at people that deserted him, people that would not identify with him, people that distanced themselves from Paul because he's in prison. If you go and visit him in prison, you may end up in prison. You may end up getting your head cut off because he's about to have his head cut off right after he writes that second letter. So would you define that as success today in Western society, wherever you are? You could be in India, Russia, wherever you are, China. Would you define that as success? A lot of people would not. He's not saying I run in order to win that men may acknowledge me. He's running a race to win in the eyes of God. An eternal race. An eternal race. What really strikes me, he's really focused on eternity, and and that's his ministry. And what he's saying there is, I don't care about these things that I could get here in this world. I don't care about whether I have to do something I know I I don't really want to do, or go under the law, like you said, like he said, and do do these things. But his race is to win this prize, that good and faithful servant, well done, when he sees the Lord in heaven. And and he had that mindset throughout his whole ministry. And, and that's amazing to see that, especially, you know, in, in living in a Western culture, our idea of success is, is much different um, in a lot of things. And even in the church, it's kind of crept in. You need to, the numbers in this big building and all of these things you kind of see, like you mentioned with the TV preachers. But Paul saw none of that. He said, if I can preach the gospel and get you to understand this eternal gift that we have, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the goal. And yeah, by all accounts in almost any period in history, he was a failure in the eyes of man. But in his eyes, he knew that he was doing what he had to do for the Lord, and his reward was going to be in heaven. And and that pours out in these writings to me, and it's amazing to see his, his attitude towards that. Yes, and, th- and think about a lot of us would not be here today if it wasn't for his willingness to run the race, to win the race, not in the eyes of men, but in the eyes of God. There probably was hardly anybody there to bury him. If history's correct, in A.D. 67, 
we're looking at AD 55 right here. So in 12, 13 years from now, he's going to have his head cut off. And who's going to be there? Who's going to even bury him? What even happened to his body? But he's talking about a race. I'm running it for the kingdom of God, and I'm trying to take as many people with me that I will become under the law to save some, without the law to save some. I will do everything for the sake of the gospel. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. He's running to win. And there's a spiritual competitiveness that needs to be in the heart of every believer, but especially the individual that God has called to bring the gospel to this world. And I'm going to say it this way. Don't be a wimp. Don't look back. Anyone that looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Look forward. Look at what's before you. Let God use you. Go the extra mile. Go the extra mile and see everything to the end. It's not a 100-meter race. It's a marathon. That's what Paul continues to bring out. And whatever happens through the process, however much you get beaten down, people lift you up, and you go through all types of different types of situation. You keep your eyes on the prize. You keep going forward. You don't allow yourself to back away or to retreat. When we put on the full armor of God, there is not anything that on that armor that protects the back. We never turn our back to the enemy. We're always going forward. And as a minister of the gospel, we have to have a spiritual competitiveness that we're going forward, we're not going back, and woe is me if I don't preach the gospel and I'm going to run this to win it. I'm not going to lose. And again, this is not a win-lose in the sight of men. It's all in the sight of God. We will stand before God someday. And in that last letter that he writes, 2 Timothy, he wants to hear, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. That is what we're living for as well, to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, earlier in this uh, teaching here in 1 Corinthians 9, we said we would read Philippians chapter 4. And in Philippians chapter 4, the reason why I want to read verses 10 through 20, and I'm just going to have Alan read it, but the reason why I'm reading this is because he refused to take an offering from the Corinthians so that there wouldn't be an accusation against the gospel. But there's nothing wrong with them supporting him. That was the right thing for the Corinthians to do. The Philippians understood this. And when Paul was under house arrest in Rome, they sent him an offering. And praise God for that. But I want you to see how Paul responds to this. He doesn't send back the offering. But please hear the heart of Paul of how he responds to this offering that has come to him. Listen as Alan reads. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. 
You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And we will talk about this more when we get to Philippians in the months to come. But listen to these words. It's not about the gift. He was excited for the Philippians of them sharing the gift because of the benefit that it comes to them. And he's learned to be content and prosperity. And for all you prosperity teachers, it's not talking about having the best of the best. It's talking about his needs being provided in abundance. He's learned to be content in prosperity and in hunger. He spent time in hunger because of his faith in Christ and preaching of the gospel. But he knows that God will supply all of your needs. He's talking not about himself, but he's talking back to the Philippians. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's all about bringing glory to God. And so we'll talk about this more, but here is a congregation that did send him a gift, and he was excited about it, not because he has money and food to put on the table, because he's learned contentment, but he's excited about what it does for the believers in Philippi. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for your word. Lord, break us of everything that binds us, everything that compels us, except, Lord, your gospel that lives in with, inside of us. Break us of everything except that which binds us to you, your service, your heart, your purposes within our lives. Let us be compelled not to live for the things of this world, but let there be a compulsion, God, to live for you and to lay down our lives for the gospel. Take away all the nonsense from our hearts, from our minds, and Lord, let us be stripped down and Lord, just be humble before you, be broken before you. And God, let us tremble at your word is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.